Today I welcome Tyler Casatano, Head of School at the Haverford School in the USA. In this episode, I discuss the role of boys' education in a co-ed world, role modelling masculine vulnerability, embedding virtues into the curriculum, and the importance of social-emotional learning in boys' education. I want to talk about the Haverford School. It's an all-boys school in Pennsylvania. Why all boys? What are the benefits of an all-boys education? Well, I think once upon a time, it was probably all boys because that's what the form of education was. We were started in 1884. So we've been around for a long time. I think though, over the past few decades, we as a school have become much more intentional about the opportunities that are presented to us as a boys school. We believe that boys learn differently, not just in the classroom, but outside of the classroom as well, putting them in a position where we can meet those needs in very specific, precise ways, something that we take very seriously. We believe that boys need movement incorporated into their days, often are motivated by project-based learning. They like to get their hands on things and see things start to finish. And we believe that relationships are really important to boys. I worked at a boys' school before Haverford and have now been at Haverford for this is my second year that boys need a lot of encouragement to step outside of their comfort zones. And learning is all about stepping outside your comfort zone, being willing to take risks, explore parts of yourself that perhaps haven't been explored before, haven't been kindled before. And boys really don't like to do that. So often they try to sort of manage the risk, only position themselves in ways that are going to play to their strengths. And as a boys' school, we are able to build the relationships between the adults and the boys, between the boys themselves that allow them to give all of themselves to the broad liberal arts curriculum that we have. And we get them to dance and sing, write poetry, give speeches about things they've struggled with and the wisdom and character that they've derived from that. We have a really strong peer counseling program, which teaches them to listen to each other and empathize and be vulnerable. In our experience is that in co-ed environments, they aren't willing to necessarily expose themselves on that level, but it's through exposing themselves on those levels that they're able to develop themselves and reach their full humanity. And how do you prepare boys in a single-sex school for a co-ed world? I think at co-ed schools, often there's a very concrete understanding of what it means to be a boy and what it means to be a girl. So the boys occupy certain spaces, are good at certain things. There are behaviors that conform or comply with what it means to be a boy on that campus. And here, at a boys' school, especially one like Haverford that has a broad and deep curriculum, when there aren't girls there to claim certain spaces, those spaces are then available to the boys. There's less of a, a sort of pronounced sense of effeminateness on this campus. And so what we can then do is teach the boys to do things that they might consider to be effeminate, but we actually think are part of being masculine, being outwardly compassionate and thoughtful and reflective and vulnerable. All of these things we think are at the core of what it means to be a good boy and a good man. And, and sometimes on campuses, those are things that are sort of claimed by girls that come a little bit more naturally to girls. So boys steer clear of those things so as to avoid being called girly. Will single-sex education continue to have a place in the future? I bring this in context. A report just came out in the UK. Again, I'm not drawing any parallels to, to the education in America, but most of the top performing schools, they do like a top list of performing schools academically. Right, in terms of whether they got through their exams and they got to where they needed to, and it's their kind of league tables. And it's the first time they've done it post-COVID. They did it 
pre-COVID and then they paused it, they've come back. Girls' schools and the co-ed schools outperform the boys' schools. All the boys' schools like Eton, probably the most famous school on the planet, they've all dropped. Is this just a product of where we are right now in 2022-23? Or is it more profound to something wider than that? Great question. I would love to see an analysis of that data that isolated the boys from the girls at co-ed schools. So it's a little bit more of an apples to apples comparison of how how are boys at at all boys schools doing relative to boys at co-ed schools. What we have seen societally is that boys are struggling. Boys are struggling academically. Boys are struggling with their social, emotional, psychological health. Boys are struggling with their relationships. Most societal metrics that measure achievement are tilted far in favor of girls. And so it could be that the co-ed schools outperform the all-boys schools because the girls are doing so well at that co-ed schools. It shifts the data. I do think that there is a, a crisis in masculinity that's happening, not just in America, but all over the world, where boys are struggling to keep pace with the type of demands that are, are placed on them in this moment and going forward. I do think that we as a boys school are well positioned to speak to those demands in direct, thoughtful ways that prepare them for lives of consequence and meaning and service. Boys schools will continue to evolve. I don't think that how Haverford is approaching its mission in 2022 is the same as how it was doing in 2012. And I don't think in 2012, it was the same as how it was doing it in 1982. I do think that Boys schools, like all schools, will continue to have nuanced understandings of where their students are and how they can meet those needs. We don't want boys to be marginalized because they were born boys and the great kind of rise of equality and the things that are going. There are just some really important things that are going on right now in society. But at the same time, we often forget to shine the light on boys who are going through emotional change, particularly in their early teens and their mid-teens, where they also are struggling to fit in and belong, have self-esteem. They're driven by what social culture believes to be the perfect body, the perfect interest, the perfect person. And we often don't see that, right? It's always shone on the other side. And so there is a voice to be had. That's a greater voice. So maybe that's what boys' school can do. You know, harbour and incubate and always immunize these boys from some of those issues and help provide a safe structure for them to learn, discover all these things and how to deal with it. You know, we talked about unconscious bias and other things. These are difficult things to bring up. Absolutely. Yeah, I think for years, girls' schools have done a great job of explaining how, as all girls' spaces, they provide their girls with the confidence and the courage to step into spaces that often are claimed by boys at school, whether that's leadership or math or science, athletics, that they have the freedom to enter those spaces when boys aren't there. I would argue that as boys schools, we do the exact same thing, but with a different set of spaces. And while it's critically important that we as a country and as a world educate girls to reach their full humanity so that they are fully equipped to go out and live lives of accomplishment and consequence and meaning, we also have to do the same thing for boys. And I just think it's a different side of themselves that's being developed. And as you said, boys are very uncomfortable with the idea of weakness or failure or vulnerability. And yet the research shows overwhelmingly that to grow, you have to fail. Learning, you have to make yourself vulnerable. And so much of our culture here at Haverford is about establishing 
the context in which boys are willing to expose themselves and give all of themselves to us so that we can then give all of ourselves to them. Yeah, and it's about having purpose and meaning. I think the highest, the largest suicide rate in the 40s is men, all driven because of pressures. They have to win, they have to succeed, they have to provide all these old-fashioned kind of directives that we believe is are the keys to a successful and happy life are born with the realities that you see with catastrophic consequences. So we need to be doing more. And I think what you're doing, uh, half of it is great. I want to talk about your 24 core virtues. I don't think I've come across a school that has so many core virtues. And also, I know you have a walk of virtues because I've walked the walk of virtues at your school. What role do virtues play in community life? Describe why and how and the walk of virtues exists and how do you use it? The virtues ground everything that we do at Haverford. They are the value around which we build our community and we establish culture. And whether that's about their academic work or how they're being taught to compete or how they're supporting each other on the stage, they hopefully pervade everything that we do here. We think it's really important to make those virtues as concrete as possible to the boys. Boys can be a little bit tactile. They often need to see things to have it reinforced for them. And so we put them on walls. We put them, as you said, on the Walk of Virtues. We begin the year by having a ceremony in which the oldest boys and the youngest boys walk together through the Walk of Virtues, which I think is a symbol that they're part of something larger and that the connective tissue in that community is these virtues and then the relationships that we hope are grounded on the virtues and, and that reinforce the virtues. I think there are other schools that have, have approached a different way. Before this, I was at a faith-based school, an Episcopal school, and they had a slightly different approach through their chapel services of delivering virtues. But here at Haverford, as a secular school, we really think that we need to name for them what we see as good character. And how do you embed those virtues into your curriculum, into everyday life? It's a great question. I think it begins with awareness of the importance of embedding them into the curriculum. So when we roll out a new curriculum, we are very mindful of how the virtues are being distributed. So we just rolled out a social emotional curriculum for our youngest students in our lower school. And before we did that, we looked at how the virtues, how they intersect with this curriculum. And one of the things that we realized is that we can organize the calendar year around the virtues. So there's a virtue of a month that we have each month. And we have community time in the lower school, which is often where this social emotional learning is coming out of the classroom and really culminating in some type of community event. And it's always through the lens of the virtue of the month. We also have a virtue of the year that the student body president and I choose the summer before. And often the speeches that we're giving to the boys come back to that virtue, integrity, is our virtue of the year this year. So we try to use it as a touch point as much as possible and sort of fold it into the envelope that we are also delivering other aspects of content. And the tough question for you, how do you measure it? It's getting off kind of corporate governance going, this is almost like a lens of how the perfect us looks. And we talk that we do it, but is there any way in which you can measure you living into it? We try to have a variety of different perspectives that help us get a sense of how we're doing. And those might be surveys we put out to the students that ask them to give us anonymous feedback. We did one just last week with our upper school boys that gave us a rich data set of our culture and 
sort of the difference between our stated culture and our lived culture. I think we also try to build in community moments that put the boys on stage, often literally on stage, as well as sometimes figuratively on stage and ask them to model the virtues or speak about the virtues. And it's interesting. I have found you get an awful lot of feedback for us, so often that happens in a building called Centennial Hall, where students will get up and give reflections, which are opportunities for faculty or students to talk about who they are, experiences they've had, things they've struggled with, and the, the wisdom and the character that those experiences have created with them. What's fascinating is I think the stronger our culture, the more authentic and vulnerable those speeches are and the more participatory our audience is. And what I mean by participatory is how much they're listening. There are times when you can hear a pin drop and that audience, and then there are times when there are some murmurs. And that gives us a lot of feedback about how much the behavior that we are hoping to build is both being modeled and lived and how much it's resonating with the boys. So giving them opportunities to practice character in a way that is public and visible and gives us organic feedback about how we're doing and, and our mission to mold them into the types of people that we're hoping to mold them into. Yeah, that's great. And it is all around modeling. Role modeling is about authenticity. And I think if your authentic vulnerability shines through, it's not an easy trait to have to kind of expose yourself. But we all learn by failure. and We all learn by opening up and showing the sides that we can't do. And actually role modeling as an adult or as someone who's a senior down the school is really massively important because what it does is it allows the younger students to see this and go, that's okay for me. I'm going to try this myself. And knowing that it's uncomfortable, but actually uncomfortable in a safe environment is fine. It's when you're uncomfortable and you're in an unsafe environment where all it does is push you back in the box. What I've found is that when we are at our best, those moments of organic authenticity and vulnerability when they take the, the mask of masculinity off and really present themselves to the community. When we're at our best, the more vulnerable somebody is on that stage, the more well-respected they are in the community, the more yeah. celebrated they are. And that's something that is hard to quantify, but you can certainly, when you're in the audience and you spend enough time around boys, you can sort of understand intuitively or sense intuitively whether that's the case. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I know that Have a School also encourages its students to be connected. How mm -hmm. do you foster these connections between students in different grades? And do you also foster connections wider than that in your community? So one way that we do it, and, and I would say connections are fundamental to our culture. We believe that the sense of belonging a boy feels here is ultimately what fuels him to embrace that vulnerability and that authenticity and to extend himself to other people and to extend himself to other activities that he might not necessarily have thought he was going to participate in. Within divisions, one of the ways that we do it is by requiring a broad liberal arts curriculum that things like athletics, things like a core academic curriculum, things like the arts, those aren't just encouraged, they're required. And so whether or not you have played a fall sport in your life, you're going to give it a shot. Or whether or not you've been in the arts before, you're going to do it. And so often, actually, boys come to us with one set of understandings of who they are and what they do, and they leave with an entirely different sense of what they're capable of. And I would say that's also true with people that it's through interacting with different people in different spaces, they learn about the sort of full range of humanity. And 
they come into contact with people they might not necessarily have had experiences with before. We, we are fortunate to be a very diverse community. We draw from a huge geographic range, different socioeconomic incomes, race, ethnicity. This is a rich, dynamic community. And so as boys are cross-pollinating with different activities, they're being exposed to a lot of different personalities and perspectives and backgrounds and experiences. And I think through that, they're able to make connections in organic ways. The sort of more structured ways in which we do it are by getting the kids together cross-divisionally for activities. So right now, as a small example, we have a big World Cup project in which every boy in the school has been assigned a team in the World Cup. And we get them together over the course of the week so that older boys can work with younger boys and teach them a little bit about the culture of that country, the history of that country, the language of that country. And it's just a forum for leadership and connectivity. And I can say as the parent of a first grader here who has become enamored of Switzerland and was heartbroken when the Swiss lost, it's just so powerful for these younger guys to have, have experience with the older guys. And it's really important for us to put those older boys in positions of leadership. And that's great also that you brought in some currency, some current affairs, something that's going on that does connect communities, that ties to your way of education, gets everyone to think globally, impact and those things, but making it interesting because there's something going on that the world is talking about. Social emotional learning is a massive part of education. Yeah. You touched on it earlier. What specific role does social emotional learning play in an all boys school? And is it a more important role than necessarily a girls or a co-ed or is it just an important thing to have in education? Well, I think it's an important thing to have in education. I think where it's more important at a, at a boys school is our recognition that, again, so often this is an aspect of growth and maturation that comes a little bit more naturally to girls. And so when boys are behind in this type of growth, they often pivot out of prioritizing it because they don't want to feel bad. They don't want to feel like they're failing. For us, creating contexts where boys don't feel a sense of stigma for struggling to control their actions and using those early touch points to help them understand that you can be a boy and cry and you can be a boy and be empathetic, that you can be a boy and be outwardly compassionate and sensitive. These are often in elementary school minds, not part of what it means to be a boy. And we believe that to prepare boys for the lives that await them and be much more dynamic experience of being a man now and in the future than perhaps 50 years ago or 100 years ago, we really need to give them that social and emotional range and skill set. We do it both in very structured curricular ways, as well as in more organic cultural ways. Have you ever found that there's a challenge in overcoming traditional masculine stereotypes? Absolutely. We as a school are in the business of presenting boys with a broader, more expansive and dynamic understanding of what it means to be a boy and a man. And they're getting a lot of messaging from society that runs counter to that, that presents them with a pretty rigid, narrow, conformist view of what it means to be a boy and a man. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many men are struggling with their health later on is that they don't necessarily have the skill sets to respond to all the different challenges that are being asked of them as, as spouses and fathers and sons and employees and employers. I think that the construct of masculinity has changed a lot from sort of Don Draper era of what it meant to be a man back in the, the 50s and even in the 80s and 90s to now. And we need to have a form of education that equips our boys with the skills and the habits and the dispositions that are going to allow them to embrace all of those challenges and opportunities in the future. 
Talking about the future, it's a topic I'm I'm often engaged in and talk around with my guests. And that's really about the future of education and what the future school looks like. If you were to look into your crystal ball, maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's longer, you know, the next generation up. Does education need to change? And if so, how do you feel it needs to change and evolve to suit the ever demanding needs of what the future world requires of the young men that are coming through your school? I think it's hard to answer. It's such a macro ubiquitous question, education, broadly speaking. One of the reasons why I believe in independent schools is that I do think that schools should have nuanced, thoughtful, mission-based approaches that speak to different types of learners and meet different types of students' needs. I think a one-size-fits-all education reduces the complexity of all of us. But broadly speaking, I think that education is all about transference or transferability. We provide our students with skills and habits and dispositions, and hopefully they're able to transfer those to new contexts to succeed, that we teach them to problem solve mathematically, scientifically, in the context of humanities, and hopefully they are able to use those skills in a a really broad future that awaits. I do think that we can do a better job of of teaching our students to transfer those things in intentional ways to more sort of quote-unquote modern contexts that allow them to understand how the scholarship that they're being taught can apply to a variety of jobs. But for me, as I see it in sort of a future where the only constant is change, what we need to do is teach our kids to learn, to provide them with a platform that is both resilient and dynamic. They're going to be asked to learn so many different new technologies and skill sets and and to interact with so many different people if we've provided them with a base that allows them to adapt and evolve and continue to learn. And that's grounded in what it means to be a good person, those virtues, then I think hopefully they will be prepared for whatever type of future awaits them. And is it skills or knowledge? Can it be both? This is your future. (laughs) I think it's skills, it's knowledge, and it's mindsets. I think. Teaching kids to work hard is is part of it. You need kids who are going to be resilient and who are going to take a service approach to the people who they come across, whether they're a boss or whether they're 23 years old, who are going to have the, as I said, the flexibility and the dynamism to interact with a diverse dynamic range of people and not just flourish in the marketplace, but also flourish in the house and be the types of parents and spouses and partners and children that we want them to be. So there is an aspect of it that's skills, but I also recognize that the skills need to be skills that they can apply to learn new skills, that we can't just teach them skills that are are relevant in this moment, but aren't necessarily going to be transferable to a future. Any modern skill that we teach them now will probably be outdated by the time they graduate from college or graduate school and enter the marketplace. So for me, it's what type of foundation are we applying to them that will stand the test of time through being able to adapt to the future brings to them. Yeah, I think a lot of think tanks, there's always one by the World Economic Forum that say it's critical thinking, creativity, flexibility, problem solving. They tend to feature quite the empathy side, the human bit is coming up. But these are just things that you know can be transferred to anything. And I actually also like your direction about just having love of learning. That's something that all schools talk about, but To have a love of learning, you've got to love being educated, love going to school, and you've got to have an environment that you enjoy. So you have no joy, then when you come out as an adult, you're disillusioned that actually, why did I go? 
that's obviously something that you're working with and doing a great job at Haverford. If you were to, again, wave your magic wand and get rid of something in education that's not fit for purpose or just needs to be updated, what would it be? One thing that I would love to get rid of that I think the Brits have figured out is a school calendar, annual calendar that's a little bit more conducive to learning. That having three months off over the summer is not always the most healthy and helpful thing to student learning. So if I had a magic wand, I would probably have it be that we adapt to your calendar. What so often we're helping students try to understand is the difference between short-term wins that might reinforce habits or skills or mindsets that are are not helpful to them versus their long-term growth. And usually those short-term wins are, are because of some type of external pressure that's being put on them, that they have to do this to be recruited to play a sport in college, or they have to do this to have the standardized testing that they need to. And sometimes those things align with what we see as the most important ingredients of that foundation. But sometimes those mindsets run counter to the things that we are working on them that we think will serve them well, not just in a year, but in 10 years or in 30 years. Again, the true test of our education is not the first job that they get out of college. The true test of our education is the type of people that they've become 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road and the lives that they've led and the relationships that they have and the contributions that they've made to society. And so I I do think that sometimes there are the sort of tertiary systems that our boys feel they have to participate in that do, I think, run against the current that we're trying to get them on for their macro, holistic, long-term development. It's been fantastic speaking to you. Believe it or not, I actually went to your merch shop when I visited. I actually have a 15-year-old daughter running around Windsor, which is, by the way, the playground where Elton John's from, just to give you a connection. It's where his kids go to school. So we're running around. There is a Haverford H on a hoodie. She is my tiny dancer. What more can I say? Thanks ever so much for your time. Well, thank you, Simon. This was a joy and, and hope to do it again soon. Great stuff. Thanks ever so much. Have a great rest of your day. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.